Hello, Silvano Guy here with Pensando System. Today, I want to cover a topic that is closed network, that I think is of fundamental importance in the data center and in the cloud network. It's not strictly related to the Pensando offering, but it's very, very important. And so I have decided to invite a friend that doesn't work for Pensando, but I consider him probably the guru of closed network, and especially is a very, very good friend. His name is Dinesh Dutt, and Dinesh Dutt will help me today, as a matter of fact, will do most of the job in uh, discussing what closed network are. Welcome, Dinesh. Hey, Silvano. Thank you for uh, inviting me to talk about closed networks. Uh, those are very kind words you said about me. I think there are lots of gurus on class network. I, I don't know if I'm a guru. I do know enough to be dangerous, I guess. But uh, hopefully what I have to say is of some value to you. Thank you. And for people who don't know, Dinesh and I were in Cisco together approximately around the year 2000. At that time, class network were absolutely not common. The classical model was core aggregation edge. It was a common design. Dinesh, can you explain us what core aggregation edge is? So the standard model, and different people call it differently. I call it access aggregation core. Some people call it access distribution core. But essentially, it is this three-tier architecture. The endpoints are connected to a layer two device, which is essentially a bridge. The bridges, there are many of them because you will have a lot of servers. They'll all not be connected to a single uh, bridge device. Uh, they'll be connected to multiple bridge devices. All of these bridge devices hook themselves up into two rather large boxes. Those two large boxes are called the aggregation box or the uh, distribution box. To give you a real life example, a classic model is to have smaller form factor boxes like the Catalyst 3500 maybe, not today's Catalyst 3500, but the old Catalyst 3500 or Cisco's Catalyst 4000 boxes as the access layer connecting to Catalyst 6500 at the aggregation or distribution layer. Or later on, it became Nexus 5000, the original version of Nexus 5000 and the Nexus 7000. These aggregation boxes, the connection between the access box and the aggregation box is completely bridged. So largely, there's a huge bridged network between the endpoint and the aggregation box. And the aggregation box is where the network switches from being bridged to being routed. And above the aggregation box, the aggregation box is like a Janus box. It has two faces. On one side, it faces the servers and it is layer two. And on the other side, it faces the core of the network and it is layer three. So this is the classic model of how you connect an enterprise network into a larger enterprise network and thereby into a larger enterprise and onto the van edge and onto the rest of the world. So this model of having access layer where you have servers connected to a bridging device, you know, they call it switch also, and the switches or the bridges are connected to two guard boxes and it is really only two guard boxes which are called the uh, aggregation box and the aggregation box connects to the rest of the network via a layer three routed network, which is the core network, is the access aggregation core network. So Dinesh, your description seems very interesting. And at the first glance, 
I don't see anything wrong with what you said. Are there limitations? Why are we moving away from core aggregation edge? For us who have lived at Cisco for a very long time, the network is the center of the universe. And I think, you know, this is almost like the Ptolemy model and the Copernicus model. The network's job is to provide connectivity to the applications and to serve the needs of the application. So when you look at this particular topology, the main reason why you want people have started moving away from this topology is because of the fact that the applications changed and the applications changed in two fundamental ways. The first fundamental way they changed was in the traffic pattern that these applications had. Instead of a north-south traffic pattern, meaning most of the servers communicating with clients that were outside of the access aggregation core, the traffic pattern became east-west, meaning between the servers themselves. Consider the case of an old style application where you had a web client that came from outside the enterprise, came to one of the servers, got load balanced potentially to one of many servers, and then they just communicated back. Instead of modern search, the query comes in, the same query is fanned out to thousands of servers, and those servers each deal with a section of the query or a section of the data that they have in response to the query, which is then aggregated and then replied back. That's a very naive way of mentioning it, but that's one way to think about it. So the traffic pattern changed from being north-south to east-west. And the second way that they changed was the scale at which these applications worked. The scale at which these applications worked was no longer something that could be stably supported by an L2 network, which was what the access aggregation core was. In order to support applications that scale to much larger numbers, you had to switch from an access aggregation core or an L2 network into a layer 3 network or a routed network. In conjunction with this change, the other way that the applications changed was that they stopped relying on L2 mechanisms such as broadcast and multicast for cluster discovery and heartbeat into L3 mechanisms such as using the DNS to discover each other. So in these three fundamental ways, the change in the applications meant that the access aggregation core was no longer the network that served the application's needs. And so the trend is to move, if I understand correctly, toward this closed network that were invented by a guy that I think is Charles Close. And they are pretty old closed network. I think they were invented in the 50s. Is that correct? Yes, they were invented in the 50s. And the basic idea, as I understand it, what Charles Kloss was trying to do was telephony networks were growing like crazy. In those days, electronics was still new. A lot of it was mechanical. And what Charles Kloss was trying to do was trying to build large enough telephony equipment so that they could meet the demands of so many different circuit switching points that were springing up all the time. How do you build a very large network using very small equipment or, you know, equipment with very small switching capacity. That was the fundamental uh, breakthrough that Charles Kloss's network, the Kloss topology, achieves. So moving from uh, 1950 to nowadays, what are the characteristics of these Kloss network boxes? Sure. You know, but before we do that, I, you know, history has always a funny way or, you know, it, it laughs at our efforts in a very funny way. If you don't pay attention, you sometimes miss the laughter. And I think it's useful to kind of think about the laughter. SDN, 
the attempt to create a centralized controller to manage the network was really a throwback in many ways to the way the old centralized command and control model existed for networks. Ever since the invention of IP network, or maybe even earlier than that, but clearly for sure with IP networks, the model was distributed. That is why you cannot really shut down any one box and expect to cut everything. I mean, you can cut off choke points as some countries do, but in general, Internet's basic job is to remain functioning independent of any single equipment failure. With the SDN approach, it seemed almost a throwback to try and get that model back in from the 50s where there was a centralized command rather than a distributed command and control. The funny part is that failed pretty badly. I think outside of Google, maybe nobody really runs SDN network. The thing that is from the past, which is the clause topology, is the one that everybody uses and is absolutely true. So, you know, history is telling you, dude, there are some good ideas. Don't pick the bad ones, pick the good ones. And it's laughing at our efforts. So that's how I like to think about it. But coming back to your question, Silvano, before we talk about the characteristics of the single RU box, I think what is important to talk about is the fundamental design shift that took place in how networks are constructed. Before the advent of the clause topology, or in reality, the advent, advent of these large hyperscaler networks, the way networks were constructed was people assumed, because of this access aggregation core model, that the aggregation box had to be indestructible, because there were essentially two boxes. If one of them died, you lost 50% of your network bandwidth. So that's a pretty substantial bandwidth loss. So what people tried to do is make that single box be as robust as possible so it wouldn't fail. So people invented two supervisor slots. Then people invented ISSU. Then people invented more stuff on top of that. This kind of arms race to try and make a single box be so strong that it would never fail was obviously an idea rooted in disaster as we have learned from all of the messes that we have had in other aspects of society. Nothing is too big to fail. Things do fail. So the fundamental shift that happened when people moved to the clause topology or moved away from the access aggregation core topology was to go back to the original ideas of the internet, which is to say the strength of the network functioning is not in any individual box's strength, but it is in the fact that there are so many and so distributed that some of them dying doesn't really affect the network. So now if you take that principle, and you add to it the fundamental idea of saying, look, when an equipment fails, I want the blast radius of that failure to be as small as possible. I don't want any more effect than there needs to be. For example, if a link goes down, I only want the effect of traffic between the guy, between the two people who lost the link. Think about what happens in an access aggregation core model. That aggregation box is really, if it goes down, it doesn't just affect a little of the network. It affects 50% of the network. For example, it is possible because the aggregation box goes down, it also takes down the other aggregation box. Why is that? So imagine just for grins that I've got 100 VLANs and in the access aggregation core model, I have put 50 VLANs on one of the aggregation boxes and 50 VLANs on the other aggregation box. 
these two aggregation boxes now are both carrying 50 VLAN load each. And when I say 50 VLAN load each, it is not just a simple load, right? These two aggregation boxes being at the junction of layer two and layer three have to address all of the ARC requirements, have to address all of the layer three requirements, have to deal with so many more protocols and constraints that it's not a simple thing. So when one box goes down, the load of the other box goes from 50 to 100, essentially doubles. That load might be too much for that box and now that box can come down too. So now you have just one failure bringing down catastrophically the entire network because the control plane could not scale. So one of the design constraints in the new model was we will never do that. One box going down should never bring down any more than the link going down or the links that are affected by this box going down and the effect has to be contained. So the characteristics of this meant other things. For example, when you have this aggregation box, which is more than a single RU box, when it failed, it failed in complex ways. As an example, I remember a conversation with Albert Greenberg from Microsoft a long time ago when we were doing the Nexus 7000 and the 5000. Albert's point to me was, Dinesh, when you think about how these networks are constructed, when it fails, I have a fundamental problem. I don't know, is it failing because the chassis failed as a whole? Did it fail because the line card is not connecting to the backplane? Did it fail because the line card CPU and the central CPU cannot talk? All of that, I have to debug. I don't know why it failed. So to answer your question of what are the characteristics of this single pizza boxes, the fundamental characteristics of this single pizza boxes are, number one, they're very small, so which means when they fail, they fail in simple ways. Now, clearly, today you've got one RU boxes. They're not one RU, they are two or three RU, but they're still a fixed form factor. I think more than one RU or two RU, we think we should talk about a fixed form factor versus a variable form factor, like a chassis box. If you look at something like a Tomahawk 4, it's 256 ports of 100 gigs. So that's not clearly a one RU box. But my point is that when these boxes fail, they are small in comparison to say a Nexus 7000 chassis, but when they fail, they fail in simple ways. There's typically a single switching ASIC. So when that fails, it fails. And so it means that the load carried by each box is distributed. So that's the other characteristic or difference between a clause topology and the access aggregation core topology. In the aggregation core topology, all the load you were adding at the axis, for example, when you added VMs, the load on the aggregation went up because suddenly there were more endpoints whose ARPs it had to respond to. When the VMs were added, the number of subnets that had to be allocated and managed by each of the aggregation boxes went up. The number of VLANs that had to be managed went up. So this is a case of a scale-in architecture where you attempt to pull in all of the complexity into two central core boxes. The benefit is that there are two core boxes managing the complexity in terms of administration in those two boxes is somewhat simpler. The problem is it doesn't scale. So in a class topology, what you do is you push everything to the edge of the network as much as possible. So a single class handles 48 ports. 48 switching ports is one VLAN, two VLAN, 20 VLANs, 100 VLANs, not more. So they can scale very easily. So from a very fundamental level, the characteristics of these fixed form factor boxes are, they are simply design boxes. So when they fail, they fail in fairly simple ways. For example, by having a single switching ASIC, 
Second, they have a single CPU. They don't have dual CPU with dual power, dual everything. What you do is you duplicate the boxes, not makes a single box invincible. So they have a simple form factor. They have simple failure characteristics and they're bloody cheap and you can have many of them. So basically the box is the unit of failure and if it fails, you replace the box, you don't try to repair it. Exactly. The basic idea is you have not sold your firstborn into slavery in order to buy the big aggregation box because they cost an arm and a leg. What you do is you buy many of these small pizza boxes and when one fails, you take the fail unit out of the network and you debug it on the side. Because you have bought many of these small boxes, you can replace it with another equivalent box, what I call substitutability, which is essentially one box looks like any other box and it is substitutable. It's interchangeable with any other box and you are essentially able to go on. That way you can keep your network working rather than functioning with a partial failure and having to deal with the stress of a broken box while the network is attempting to be brought up. One of the things that is a bit counterintuitive, it seems that in the core aggregation, this uh, central box being very big, had also a lot of bandwidth. How do we deal with bandwidth in closed network? If you look at a Broadcom's Tomahawk 4 chipset, it has 25.6 terabits per second. If you look at a Mellanox uh, Spectrum 2, if you look at Innovium, they are marble. They all have something like 12.8 terabits per second. That's way more bandwidth than any of these chassis could handle. So first of all, handling of bandwidth is not really a problem just because you say it's a single form factor box or a fixed form factor box or that they are simple chips. The second factor is you also want to think about how much bandwidth you want in any one of the boxes and what you're doing with that bandwidth. As an example, unless you're a hyperscaler, 256 ports of 100 gig is probably larger than the network that 99.9% of the enterprises are building. So at that point, you have to ask yourself, is Tomahawk 4 really the chip for me or should I be focusing on something else? Also, Broadcom's Tomahawk 4's reasons for existence is to do 64 ports of 400 gig so that the uh, hyperscalers can build ever larger networks. So to come back to your question, how do they deal with bandwidth? They deal with bandwidth in two ways. They first deal with the bandwidth by having each box be providing sufficient bandwidth. Even if you go back to Trident chipset that started this whole thing going, it was a 640 gig chipset. That was pretty high compared to what a Nexus 7000 could do at the time or a Nexus 5000 could do at the time. So with 640 gigs bandwidth throughput, you could build a lot of boxes. And now by deciding what is the connectivity between each layer of the clause topology, you can construct very efficiently a extremely high bandwidth network at an extremely low cost compared to what you would have to do equivalently with a big chassis, the pizza boxes, the way the access aggregation core model was. And the other important point to remember, and I say this again because I think this is something that is not truly still appreciated a lot by people, is that there is a healthy tension between how small you want the boxes to be so that your unit of failure is contained and the, um, the size of the network you can build. With a four-port box, clearly if you, it dies, you lose only four ports. So that's somewhat better than a 256-port box. But the size of the network you can build with a four-port box is also limited 
you will have to build a many mega tier network in order to get to the kinds of scales that we have. So there is the tension between the size of the network you want to build and the bandwidth that each box has to control the failure domain of each box. Yes, and when I look to this closed network, I see that there is a rich uh, sort of link set between the box that connect the host, which normally I think are called leaf or top of the rack, and the box that form the backbone that they are called spine. When we were playing with layer 2, spanning tree will have cut all that link, and so the bandwidth will not have been used. How do closed network, modern closed network, deal with that? Very good question. And I think this is where the fundamental shift happens. In the access aggregation core, one of the things I did not point out earlier, and you pointed out precisely the reason why, is that spanning tree cuts redundant bandwidth. In other words, the spanning tree is focused on building non-redundant loop-free network. What that means is if you've got redundant links, you really can't use them. So even though you're trying to build higher capacity links, you are stuck with being unable to build a higher capacity link because of spanning tree, which is why you invent solutions like link aggregation or bond, because you want to try and use more bandwidth but you can't by putting redundant links because spanning tree will cut them. The way clause solves all of this is to simply say, put as many interconnect links as possible, redundant links as possible, I will use all of them. And the way it does that is it discards spanning tree completely and uses IP routing, which allows you to use all the redundant bandwidth you have to get the higher bandwidth rather than trying to rely on large box or trying to do things like bond to use that redundant bandwidth. So, if I understand correctly, the layer 2 network no longer propagate over the closed network. The closed network is a pure layer 3 network, a pure IP network. Absolutely. The closed topology pushes you in the direction of using a pure layer 3 network. Now, there were solutions that I was intimately involved with, and I think you were too, Silvano, uh, which was called Trill, or in Cisco's parlance, it was called Fabric Path, which attempted to try and take advantage of the clause topology, but get rid of spanning tree and use a routing protocol, but still be a purely L2 network. That was a terrible idea. We did it for the reasons we did it at that time. But the IP network provides all of that without having to invent a new layer, half layer, so to speak, that Trill was or Fabric Path attempted to be, and everything just works as pure IP. So yes, using pure IP, which is routed networks, you achieve the complete use of all of the bandwidth. But, you know, there is always the need for exception. For example, if I am in a situation in which I have two hosts on two different leaves that want to be in the same subnetwork, can I accommodate that on closed network somehow? The topology that you allude to, Silvano, where an endpoint is dual attached to the leaf, to two separate leaves, is a very common one in the enterprise networks. In that topology, the way the dual leaves are attached to the uh, two top of rack switches is via a bond, via lag, and the two top of rack switches use a proprietary protocol, proprietary to each vendor, protocol called multi-chassis lag. Those two switches 
provide the model of a single device from the perspective of lag which is bond a bond is only formed between two devices which have the same so called system id from the lacp protocol perspective and so those two bond devices those two top of rack switches fake the system id and then they play a game between each other through this proprietary protocol called mlag to make it look to the servers that they are talking to a single device so from the server perspective it's a bond so you get through the bond and the mlag mechanism dual attached and both links being active at the same time but the bridging network stops right there meaning the clause topology is between the leaf and the spine or the top of rack and the leaf or the spine it is not between the top of rack and the server the top of rack and the server is l2 in all the topologies so if you look at the hyperscalers the connection between the top of rack and the endpoint is still l2 the clause topology basically says i don't care how you connect to me but once you connect to me everything is l3 i understand that but suppose that i am really old and obsolete and i still have this application that is still has these three servers that want to be in the same subnet they are attached to different leaf is there any way to propagate a layer 2 subnet over a closed network so that's a, another great question so your question is not just one of how the whether the servers are dual attached or not the question is can i propagate or somehow carry through an l2 network over a closed topology and the answer is yes and the way you do that is through what is called network virtualization you essentially add another tunnel on top of uh, the clos uh, network so the clos topology the layer 3 network that is the heart of the clos topology becomes what is called an underlay and so that traffic continues to be routed but you add a tunnel header and what is inside the tunnel header is an l2 packet and so now you can transmit packets from one leaf or one top of rack to another top of rack via the spine which is routed but because the packet is tunneled you can have the packet have a l2 be between two completely different leaves in other words i can have vlan 5 on leaf 1 have a packet header added which will make the take the packet to leaf 2 which is a layer 3 hop away from leaf 1 via one of the spines and have after it pops out of the tunnel be connected to another vlan 5 which is essentially layer 2 adjacent but it is on a completely different layer 3 hop so to speak basically you have created an extension of l2 in a clos topology using the tunnel header vxlan is a classic use case in this topology to extend an l2 over a clos topology so if i want to educate myself i can go and uh, check uh, on the internet what vxlan is yes you can go read about vxlan you can read about network virtualization more than vxlan and more precisely you can go read about yes short answer yes so dinesh uh, we have covered a lot of ground here uh, i think there are more consideration you want to talk about uh, and i think we should do it in another session uh, what do you think can be a good topic for the next session I think a good topic for the next session will be two things. One is what are some of the design choices you make in a clos topology 
and the second for a lot of people is the confusion can i grow the clause topology how does a clause topology scale how do the hyperscalers use a clause topology to scale to the sizes that they have i think those two aspects are worth thinking about for a second very interesting topic we will do it in the next section let's close it here I'll thank you very much, Dinesh, for your very clear explanation today on Close Network. Thank you, Silvano. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and uh, to try and get the world up to speed. It's 2020 and it's funny. I still run into people who don't know what a clause topology is. So I appreciate your attempts to get this message out to the masses even more. And Dinesh, I know you have a very interesting blog on GitHub pages. Do you want to give a reference of that blog? Sure. So one of the things I do is I talk about networking concepts uh, on a blog called The Elegant Network, and you can reach it on Medium. It's called The Elegant Network on Medium, or you can go visit it via GitHub. It is elegantnetwork.github.io. Uh, the topics are not precisely class related I think a much better place for you to understand all of this in a coherent, comprehensive fashion would be my book, which is The Cloud Native Data Center Networking. Ah, correct. I forgot to mention that. Thank you again. Uh, we will talk with Dinesh again uh, to finish covering Close Network. Let me also remind you of my blog on GitHub pages. It is silvanoguy.github.io. Thank you so much. I hope it was interesting.